We have recorded here in the opening verses of John 2 the first miracle that Jesus ever performed, and that is his turning of water into wine. And I personally find it interesting how understated this particular miracle was. Uh, correcting a, uh, what would have been an embarrassing situation at a wedding. That is the first occasion for the display of Jesus' supernatural and miraculous power. More than that, if you're, reading caref- or if you're not reading carefully through these verses, you might actually miss that a miracle even took place. Uh, we only have it briefly mentioned in verse 9 that the water had now been turned to wine. We're not even told how it was done, not given much more detail than that. And as far as we can tell, this miracle was only known to Jesus' disciples and maybe a couple of servants who were on hand. Uh, Maybe if you're like me, uh, you see a movie that you really like and so you purchase the DVD. I know a lot of people don't purchase DVDs anymore, but you purchase the DVD because what's on the DVD? On the DVD you have have the bonus features. You have the behind the scenes uh, footage. That's a little bit of what we're getting here in John 2. If you saw the the movie, the, 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 the video of this whole wedding feast, you would have seen nothing spectacular really. You would have seen some people celebrating this uh, marriage, this wedding. Uh, you would have uh, seen maybe a little bit of commotion going on in the back of the room toward the kitchen, but you would see no interruption in the festivities, nothing uh, actually uh, of any consequence. But if you were to see the behind the scenes footage, which is what we get in John 2, we of course learn a lot more of what's going on behind the scenes. And this is John's purpose, to show us what was going on in the kitchen. Uh, what potential disruption to the party was averted through the work of Jesus. John gives us a window into this great miracle that Jesus performed, and the bridegroom there at the wedding, uh, he may have gone to his grave never knowing what exactly Jesus had done for him, but John intends for us to know it, and he intends for us who are his people to learn something by it. So what do we do with this account in John 2? What are we meant to learn? Well, I do think we miss the meaning entirely to this passage if we don't appreciate that verse 11 is the pivotal verse in this text. Let me read that verse again. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the first of Jesus' signs recorded here in John's gospel. And the purpose of it was so that Jesus could manifest his glory, reveal something about his glory in a way that could be seen by some. And the disciples see his glory, and what happens? Faith is born. This is a a basic principle established again and again in John's gospel. Faith is born out of seeing Jesus for who he is in all of his glory. You might recall in the prologue of John's gospel in in chapter one and verse 14, John draws our attention to this as an eyewitness of what took place. There in chapter one he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son sent from the father full of grace and truth. And then in the very next chapter, the first sign is recorded. The first miracle of Jesus is recorded. And what do we see? Jesus was manifesting his glory and the disciples believed in him. Faith is born out of seeing Jesus for who he is. And this is why we so often pray, for those of you who are outside of Christ, we want you to see Jesus for who he is in all of his glory. 
And so often in worship settings like this, you come here and there are two different reactions. Some people here don't see anything of glory in this service. Some people read the Bible, don't see anything of glory in the Bible. They come, they see people singing, closing their eyes, raising their hands, and they they have no understanding of what that's about. Then there are other people in services of worship like this. I'd like to think most of the people in a service of worship like this who see all kinds of glory. They're here in the presence of the living Christ who is full of grace and truth, and they have seen him for who he is as a savior for sinners and as Lord over all. And it is with that, that clear and true sight of Jesus, it's out of that seeing of his glory that faith is born. And indeed, all those who see Jesus for who he is have faith in him. It's this glorious cycle we see, glory, faith. And when faith is born, we see more glory. And more faith is born. Glory, faith, glory, faith, glory, faith. And I won't hide from you who are outside of Christ, who are not believers. My prayer for you this morning is that you'll see something of the glory of Christ revealed in this text. And that it's seeing the glory of Jesus, this manifestation of his glory, you too would have faith in Jesus Christ. So I am seeking to open this text this morning, and as I'm doing so, I understand verse 11, this manifestation of Jesus' glory and faith being born, that's the pivotal verse in this passage. The disciples saw something of Jesus' glory in the events described, John 2, 1 through 12. So you're looking at this text, and you should be asking the question, where's the glory? All right, where is it? The disciples saw it, and they believed Where is the glory in what Jesus is doing here in this passage? Well, I see at least four things, and trust me, there are a whole lot more, but four things at least jump out at me, and they'll be the four main headings for uh, our time this morning. So four ways in which we see the glory of Jesus manifested in this passage. First of all, Jesus answers to no one but his Father. Jesus answers to no one but his Father. As such, that means he must be the son of God. Jesus answers to no one but his father. Look again at verses one through five. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now it's probably important to understand and observe as a matter of context uh, that weddings in Jesus' day would have been community events. They would often go on for a few days at a time, the wedding reception or the, the celebration of the wedding. And the groom was usually responsible to pay for the wedding. That's a little bit different from the tradition in our culture. Normally it's the bride's family who pays for the wedding. Well, in those days, it would have been the groom who was responsible to pay for the wedding. Uh, but many from the community, those who knew the groom and his family, would often pitch in to provide food and to help serve tables. And some have suggest, suggested, some commentators have suggest, suggested, uh, that that's what Mary is doing. She's a friend of the family, and she's helping in the kitchen, uh, just a pair of hands ready to help. And so naturally, she'd be the one to discover the shortage of wine in the kitchen. Wine was the standard drink at wedding celebrations, and it was the groom's responsibility to provide wine for the entire party. And we read in verse 3 that the wine ran out. 
And this may not hit us the same way today, uh, but the wine running out, which was again the unique responsibility of the groom to provide through the length of the party, this would have presented for him and for his family a very embarrassing situation and would have been a source of great shame to him and to his bride and to their families. So this is some context for what I think has to be one of the most awkward conversations in the Bible, the conversation between Jesus and his mother, verses four and five. Mary comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. Presumably there had been wine, now they've run out. They have no wine and Jesus says to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I don't know if it's just me, but it feels like John left out like seven or eight lines in the conversation. It's not readily apparent what exactly is meant by each line in this somewhat awkward conversation. But I I think if we look at it carefully, uh, we can arrive at some conclusions about this interaction between Jesus and his mother. So let's look at each statement that's made. Okay, first, the words of Mary. She says, to Jesus, they have no wine. There's a shortage of wine. She comes to Jesus, informs him of this fact. Now, why does she do this? And what does she expect Jesus to do about it? And of course, the commentators suggest a number of things in terms of what she's getting at with these words. Perhaps, and I think this is what most people think when they see those words from Mary, she's asking Jesus to do a miracle and somehow produce wine from nothing, so perhaps she's saying they have no wine, so why don't you use your supernatural powers to make wine so we could all avoid this embarrassing uh, situation. She's asking Jesus to do a miracle, and a lot of people conclude that because that's what he goes on to do, of course. Uh, Another thing Mary could be asking or could be getting at when she says to him and informs him they have no wine, uh, she may want Jesus to intervene and to perhaps say something. Uh, Like, while we try to figure out this problem in the kitchen, this would be a great time for you, Jesus, to give a toast or something. Or you know what? Preach one of those uh, famous sermons or discourses or tell a parable or something like that while we try to figure out how we're going to put a good face on this situation. And there's all sorts of other things that are suggested as possible reasons for why Mary says this to Jesus. I personally don't think it's all that complex. Why does Mary go to Jesus and make known to him this need? Very simply, who would you go to? There's a problem, a big issue here. Who would you go to? Mary already knows. I mean, Jesus is maybe about 30 years old at this point. She knows he's pretty spectacular. Okay, she knows his divine wisdom. She's heard it. She's heard him teaching in the temple even by this point. She remembers the words of the angels and and here's this need, here's this problem and well, hey, if anyone's gonna know what to do in this situation, let's go to Jesus and make him aware. I imagine this was something of a regular occurrence. Anytime something went wrong, let's, let's talk to Jesus about it and surely he'll know what to do. One thing I will say though is that I don't believe we have reason to think that Mary expected Jesus to perform a miracle. I don't think when she comes to Jesus, she's saying, they have no wine, so make some. I don't think we should understand her words that way. We're to understand, according to John, that this was the first miracle Jesus ever performed. 
And so I don't think we should be thinking that Jesus had been doing all these miracles for all these years. We often think like that, don't we? Even as a child, Jesus must have been always, you know, um, evidencing supernatural abilities. You know, he'd be playing kickball with the other kids in Nazareth, and he'd, he'd kick a slow grounder to third base, and he'd beat out the throw to second with his supernatural speed with a stand-up double or something like that. Or the kids liked to wrap a blindfold around his eyes and tie his hands behind his back, and, and he'd play them in a game of chess and beat them and cause the pieces to move just by his supernatural abilities as the Son of God. I don't think that happened at all. Not just because that's silly and a little bit irreverent, but beyond that, John tells us this is the first sign that Jesus performed. And in so doing, I think that it was wholly unexpected. I don't think Mary is sitting here thinking, Jesus, you're about to turn water into wine, you're about to do like you do, and here's just another time for you to manifest your glory. I think she has a genuine need. She knows Jesus is wise and and, and is perfect and spectacular in so many ways, and so I'm gonna make this need known to my son, Jesus. And personally, I think, when it says in verse 11 that he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him, I see no reason not to include Mary in their number. She too is a disciple, and she sees this manifestation of his glory that I believe was wholly unexpected, and she, with the other disciples, believes on Jesus. This wasn't just typical Jesus at this wedding. This was something new. This was something extraordinary in his ministry. So this is Mary coming to Jesus, perhaps not even knowing what she wants him to do, but in a state of panic, she says to him, they have no wine. Now Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Woman, what does this have to do with me. I know some of you husbands have now found your new life verse. Your wife asks you to unload the dishwasher. You say, woman, what does that have to do with me, right? <laughs> well, first notice Jesus doesn't refer to Mary as his mother, okay? That's what we would expect, mother. What is this? He doesn't refer to her as his mother. I think we should hear this from Jesus as a very brusque response, not a disrespectful one. But it is arresting, it's, it represents a break, it's not what we would expect. He says, woman, what does that have to do with me? And what I think Jesus is doing is he's communicating that no one has special access to him but his father. Family relations are no argument for a special connection with Jesus, and Jesus here, in a striking way, is saying that he does not answer to typical human authorities. His mother holds no sway over him. And I think the disciples are looking at this. He just called her woman. He didn't respond to her appeal at all. He must be someone unique. I think what we see here is that, is that his mother, his brothers, anyone else has no special access to Jesus. He determines his way in concert with the Father. You'll probably remember uh, what's said in Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We see there's no angle that gives you special access to Jesus, not even Jesus' own mother. He's not answerable to her. He says to her, woman, 
What does this need have to do with me? Why are you coming to me? Do you think that you command me? Do you think that I'm answerable to you? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Don't you know that I operate on a different timetable? My hour and my works are appointed by the Father, set by him. He tells me when the hour has come. He tells me when to do the works he's given me to do. I answer to him and him alone and not to you. Thank you very much. For anyone else in the world to say this, it would be impossibly disrespectful. Not for Jesus, who answers only to the Father. When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he's saying, if I'm to do anything in this situation, it won't be because you're my mother. It will be because my Father has given me the green light. And from here on out, we'll see that Mary will relate to Jesus as his disciple. She won't plead any special connection or special authority over Jesus. She, along with the others, are followers of him. And she, though Jesus' mother, will submit to him as Lord. And this leads us to what's said in verse five. Now the third line that's given. His mother, Mary, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I think there's reason to believe that Mary was perhaps supervising these servants. Like I said, she was probably contributing in the kitchen. And so she looks to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Perhaps not even knowing what Jesus was about to do. I think she's probably somewhat chastened. She realizes that in her haste, she thought she could maybe command Jesus, perhaps. But now she recognizes he will move when the Father tells him to move, and he will do the things that the Father tells him to do. And so uh, she looks to these servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Just do what he says. She knows simply to trust him. And so she says to the servants, do what he tells you to do. I think really this is actually... Uh, in an interesting way, the call to discipleship, the call to follow Jesus. To be a disciple, one way we could put it, is to do whatever he tells you, to do whatever Jesus says. Mary seems to know that if you do whatever Jesus tells you, everything will be all right. And so Mary recognizes my son is on a mission. He answers to his father. I don't make the rules. I don't put pressure on him. He is the Lord and will discern what is right in this situation. He will do all things well. And so you servants, just do whatever he tells you. Should have been the starting place for her. Just do whatever Jesus says. Now this is not the main point of the passage, but I think it's a relevant side note, okay? How often do we come to Jesus with complaints Things we want him to do for us, making our needs known to him as if we can just, you know, the drop of a hat, get him to serve us and do things for us. Like Mary, we have no wine. Jesus, my husband and I, we don't have enough money to pay our bills. I don't have a spouse. We don't have children. I'm not getting my way at work. I'm not getting the job or the promotion that I want. We have no wine. Can I suggest that before coming to Jesus with complaints about our lack of wine, maybe we start with do whatever he tells you. I'm gonna start with obedience. I'm gonna start with following him. I'm gonna walk in his ways. I'm gonna do whatever he commands. And in that context, from that framework, make my needs known to him. Again, not the main point, but I think a relevant side note. Well, however she gets there, Mary does get there. And she's submitting to Jesus' will now in this situation. 
What's my overall point in these verses? Jesus answers to no one but his Father. And if Jesus is to do anything in this situation, it won't ultimately be at Mary's behest. He awaits orders from his Father in heaven. So you're looking for the glory. The manifestation of his glory, where do we see it? First of all, we see it in Jesus' unique relationship to his Father as the one to whom he is answerable. All right, now secondly, Jesus is the only source of true cleansing. Jesus is the only source of true cleansing. Look with me at verses six to eight. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. I do think there are some subtle motifs that we can pick up on in this text. So I just ask the question, why are we given the level of detail we're given in verse six? Why does he not just say there were some jars nearby? Why does John go out of his way to observe that there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons? We'll observe again and again in these gospel accounts, you don't just give details for details sake. Normally they have some bearing on the narrative. And so why does John tell us the original purpose of these water jars and that Jesus gives them a new purpose? Here's what I think John is subtly getting across and and we see it only subtly. I think the disciples would have observed this in a major way. Jesus wishes to show us that the Jewish purification rites are obsolete now that he's come. And what was formerly used for ritual purification will be utilized for something different now that Jesus is here. There is a better purifier on the scene now. Full and final cleansing is here in Jesus Christ. And so he takes these symbols of purification under the old covenant and he's saying don't worry about filling these up with the water of the old covenant. I'm going to fill them up with the wine of the new covenant. These purification jars would have been used as you were entering the temple. In in, in a symbolic way, you you would wash yourself, symbolizing some sort of ritual purity and ritual cleansing. Jesus, I think, here is replacing those jars completely with himself and with the wine that he brings. Now, that may seem like a fanciful interpretation to you, but I think it's warranted for at least a few reasons. The first is what I've already said. The context is purification. There's detail given here about the Jewish rites of purification, and along the same lines, it's no coincidence that it's wine that Jesus produces. Wine was a a purifying drink, a cleansing drink. It had medicinal effects. It had a purifying effect. Timothy is told to drink wine for his stomach's sake. So purification, to some degree, is in the background of this text. But a second reason is that there are obvious parallels in the New Testament between wine and the blood of Jesus by which Christians are cleansed from their sins. A third reason, one of the themes in John's gospel is how Jesus displaces Old Testament figures and events and objects. So for example, next week we'll see how Jesus uh, uh, replaces the temple that the temple was the center access point for the people of God whereby they could experience his presence, but now in Jesus, he is the temple. We come to God through him, and I see no reason to conclude Jesus isn't doing the same thing here. Here are these water jars used for old covenant ritual cleansing. 
Something greater is here. And they'll no longer be used for that purpose. They're no longer needed for that purpose. They're going to carry the wine that I bring here in the new covenant. And a fourth and final reason, I think that this is what Jesus is doing, is because there is a redemptive historical shift taking place with Jesus coming into the world. We're going to see this again and again in John's gospel, but the old covenant is passing away. And with Jesus, the new covenant is here. Jesus is replacing the water of the Jewish purification rites with the wine of the new covenant. You won't need these jars anymore after my coming, Jesus is saying. Jesus changes the water of Judaism into the wine of New Testament Christianity. Ritual cleansing is over. Jesus is the greater purifier. Jesus provides the purification that's needed, and he provides it abundantly. In Revelation, how did the saints make their robes clean? They washed it in the blood of the Lamb. So you want to be clean. You don't need to wash yourself with holy water. You don't need ritual cleansing. You need the blood of Jesus Christ. And you need the cleansing and the purity that he alone can bring. Real, true, lasting purity before God is only found through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, now that I'm here, you don't need these water jars anymore. Fill them up with wine. And that's what I will bring in the new covenant. So where do we see Jesus' glory? Secondly, we see it in his ability to truly cleanse and truly purify. And if you're the disciples looking on, this would be irreverent for anyone else to do. Don't you know what these jars are used? But Jesus says, no, fill them with water. And he turns them into wine. And his glory is manifested. A third way in which the glory of Jesus is manifested to his disciples. Seeing Jesus answers to no one but his Father. Jesus is the only source of true cleansing. Thirdly, and simply, Jesus is a miracle worker. Jesus does miraculous things. He does signs and wonders. Verse 11 says this, the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So lest we get too distracted by the odd conversation Jesus has with his mom or by the presence of these jars for Jewish purification rites, let's not miss the big thing in this text. Jesus turns water into wine. Who can do that but God? Miraculously, in a wonderful way, Jesus provides wine at this wedding feast. John 5, verse 36, Jesus says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, like turning water into wine, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father himself has sent me. Like, hello, do you see the things that I'm doing? You hear about what happened at the wedding, how the wine ran out, and I filled the jars with water, and like that, turned them into wine. I'm showing you that I am God. I have command over all things, and if I say to this water, you shall be wine, it will be so. And here's a thought. If Jesus can turn water into wine, what can't he do? If Jesus can turn water into wine, what can't he do? Like, can he cause a disabled man to walk? Yes, see John 5. Can he produce bread ex nihilo out of nothing? Yes, see John 6. Can he make a blind man see? Yes, see John 9. 
Well, can he raise somebody from the dead? Yes. See John 11 and the raising of Lazarus. If he could turn water into wine, what can't he do? Can he save my hardened teenage son who doesn't give a rip about anything I tell him about Christianity? Of course he can. Can he save my lost spouse who is so far from Jesus Christ that I've begun to lost all hope? Yes, of course he can. Can he heal my broken heart so weighed down by the burdens and anxieties and pressures and temptations of this world? Yes, he can because he turned water into wine. Can he take the water of my anxiety and produce the sign of contentment? Yes. Can he take the water of my lust and give me the sweet wine of a pure heart? Yes, he can. Can he take the water of my anger and my outbursts turn it into the wine of patience. Yes, he can do that. If he can turn water into wine, what can't he do? And Jesus manifested his glory to his disciples at this wedding, and he has manifested his glory a million other times to his disciples throughout the ages, and he still manifests his glory to us today. Jesus is still turning water into wine and doing greater things than that. Our Lord is still the one who provides wine at the banquet in supernatural ways. So brothers and sisters, when faced with the spiritually impossible, let faith say, my Jesus turned water into wine. He can do the impossible, and so I will hope in him. Observe how hopeless this situation was. Desperation for Mary, shame and humiliation for the groom, and just like that, Jesus changes things. I often pray this. You're in a hopeless situation you're in a desperate situation and it just looks bleak and it looks bad. And I take hope from this passage. The, the, the God, the Lord who changes things can intervene just like that at any time. Have you ever experienced Jesus do something like that? It looks so hopeless. How could any good come out of this? This is terrible. I'm in a, a troubled state, a terrible position. And just like that, Jesus changes things. Just like saying to water, you shall be wine. He changes the situation. May we be motivated to pray to him as the God who changes things, as the Savior who changes things in a moment and turns water into wine. He doesn't always do it, but often he does. And because he's the one who turns water into wine, we can have hope that often he will change things that appear hopeless and that appear impossible and will once again do as he has done on so many occasions. He will manifest his glory even to us. So where do we see Jesus' glory? Here in the third place, in his ability to perform supernatural signs and wonders. Now, fourthly and finally, where do the disciples see the glory of Jesus? Fourthly, in the truth that Jesus brings abundant life. Jesus brings abundant life. Now, there's something you have to recognize at this point about wine in the Bible. Wine was a symbol of blessing, of abundance, of celebration, and of joy. So you have texts like Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Wine's a symbol of blessing in this text. Deuteronomy 7, verse 13, he will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine. Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15, 
You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So we see often the Bible indicates that wine is a symbol of blessing on his people, a symbol of abundance, of celebration, and of joy. And also we see in some places that the lack of wine is sometimes associated with God's withholding of blessing or with God's curse. You have texts like Isaiah 24, 6 through 11, where three times the lack of wine is associated with the cursing of God. And interestingly, one thing we learn in the Old Testament is that one of the ways God foretells of the blessings that will come in the new covenant is that there will be wine in abundance, again, as a sign of blessing. So in Isaiah 25, as God is telling of the glories of the age to come, we read these words in verse six. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Amos 9 Verses 11 through 14, and this is a pivotal text for our consideration this morning. Looking ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ, we read these words in Amos 9, verse 11 and following. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches. The booth of David is the house of David, the son of David, the promised one to come. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And then you get to John 2. And here's Jesus in a miraculous way providing wine. And I contend that we have nothing less here than the fulfillment of Amos 9. At least the beginnings of it. There will come this age in which the mountains will drip sweet wine. Is it a coincidence that upon drinking the wine that Jesus produced, they said, this is good wine. This is the best wine. It's sweet wine. Here we have the beginnings of the fulfillment of these prophecies about this coming age in which wine would flow in abundance as a sign of God's blessing and a sign of joy and a sign of celebration. What's signified by Jesus' provision of wine at this wedding feast is that Jesus brings with him the blessing and abundance and joy of the gospel. So John 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 15, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, to be clear, to let a little bit of air out of the room, I am not saying you will find joy ultimately by drinking wine. That's not the point. The joy comes by having the wine giver, the one who turns the water into wine. He is bringing with him abundance of joy and celebration and prosperity. That's what's symbolized. What you need is not a glass of wine. You need Jesus, who is able to turn the water 
into wine. And by putting your faith and trust in the wine giver, you can have abundant life. You can have joy. You can have eternal life. It's no surprise, brothers and sisters, then, that the gospel again and again is presented to us as a call, as an invitation to a wedding feast in which wine overflows in abundance. And who is laying out the banquet? It is Jesus himself. He says, come. Oh, I got food for you to eat. I've got good wine. I've got abundant life to offer you. I bring joy to you. Come, eat at my feast. And one of the things I think people miss about Christianity is that we often, we often think of it in terms of purely self-denial. You know, we just have a furrowed brow, Christians all the time, and you know, Christians are just like those old Puritans, and they don't enjoy anything, and life is just about the hard road and doing the hard thing, and it's just, it's not a party, but man, they're self-disciplined, and they deny themselves. That's not the picture Jesus gives us. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He brings everlasting life. The great supper of the Lamb is pictured as a banquet, as a wonderful feast, and Jesus is there throwing a party for his people and inviting them to eat at his table. Eternal life is the sweetest life you can be given. We get a foretaste of it now, and we will have it in its fullness and abundance on the last day. Friends, Jesus is hosting a banquet, and he does offer wine and abundance and joy and celebration, and he has designed that sinners saved by his grace would sit at his table and eat and drink with him. That's the good news, that's the gospel. That the, the one who created all things, the word who was in the beginning and was with God and who indeed was God, he invites us as guests to the wedding banquet, to the wedding feast. Now in closing, it's worth asking this question. How is it that Jesus can invite us to such a banquet and give to us such abundant life we're sinners we have no right appearing before God or entering into his feast in one place Jesus talks about how there were certain ones who didn't have clothes appropriate for a wedding feast we don't have the right clothes for this kind of a wedding feast we don't have a right to this abundant life that he offers us so how is it possible that Jesus would invite us would invite you my friend to this great wedding feast? I think the answer in part comes to us by the cameo appearances that wine makes in a few other places in this gospel. One obvious one is the Lord's Supper. There was wine at the Lord's Supper. And Jesus says of the cup that's passed out to his disciples, this is the new covenant in my blood, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. The wine that Jesus brings, representative of his, his blood, indicates his forgiveness of sins. We have forgiveness in this cup. But where does wine show up again? The Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus pictures this cup being held before him. And what does he say? I would that this cup would be removed from me. But not my will, but yours be done, Father. Jesus is ready to drink that cup of wine which represents the wrath of God, full strength, poured out upon sinners like you and me. He's gonna take that cup to himself. He's just given his disciples the cup of forgiveness. He takes to himself the bitter cup of God's wrath. And where's the third place wine shows up? Do you remember at the cross? What was at the foot of the cross? 
said he saw a jar of sour wine. And he said, I thirst. And what they do, they took a sponge on a pole and they dipped it in that sour wine and they put it to his lips and shoved it in his face. Symbolic of the sour, bitter wine of God's wrath that he took for us. And so the reason, brothers and sisters, we can take to ourselves the sweet wine of forgiveness and blessing and abundant life at the banquet table of the Lord Jesus is because he himself took to himself the bitter, sour wine of God's wrath. Now that's sweet gospel. That's good news. You, my friend, could have a seat reserved for you at the marriage supper of the Lamb if you will cling to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And he is willing to give to you the cup of forgiveness because he himself took the cup of divine judgment. Let's pray.